Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, with his forces attacking Russia's neighbor from three sides, penetrating deep into the country to surround its capital, Kiev. Joining us to try to make sense of why Putin started the first major war in Europe since 1945 and what he hopes to gain out of it is Nina Khrushcheva, a professor in the Graduate Program of International Affairs at the New School and a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. She's also an editor of and a contributor to Project Syndicate and the author of The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. And her latest book is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. And she has an article at Project Syndicate, Putin is No Nixon. Then we'll look into the sanctions announced today by President Biden and speak with Anders Asland, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia, Kyrgyzstan and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. And we'll discuss the fate of a country he knows well, now undergoing a brutal invasion. Then finally, with a dictator and a kleptocrat threatening world peace in a war of his choosing because he has the power to do so, having extinguished democracy and the rule of law in Russia, we'll speak with Moises Nam, a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an internationally syndicated columnist. He previously served as an editor-in-chief of foreign policy, as Venezuela's trade minister and as executive director of the World Bank. He's the author of the new book, Just Out, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century, and we will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, The Dictator's New Playbook, Why Democracy is Losing the Fight. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Nina Khrushcheva, who's a professor in the Graduate Program of International Affairs at the New School and a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. She's also an editor of and a contributor to Project Syndicate and the author of The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. And her latest book is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. And she has an article at Project Syndicate, Putin is No Nixon. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nina. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Nina. And speaking of empires, President Biden used that description in his press conference today when he said 
that Putin has much larger ambitions than Ukraine. When he gave in one of those bizarre long tirades that he had on Monday, he was actually unusually harsh on your grandfather, the former Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, in saying that the communists created this artificial country. So is he really sort of pining not for the, to bring back the Soviet Union, but to bring back the Tsarist Empire? Well, that I actually wrote an article for Project Syndicate th- two months ago exactly on that subject, is that Soviet Union is no, of no interest to him because he lives in the historical you know, waves of history, essentially. So he is Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Vladimir the Great, all the greats, and Putin the Great here too. So yes, I think in a bizarre way, it is in a bizarre, bizarre, is that I'm not entirely sure that it's just the whole empire that he wants, because that would be too cumbersome. But at the same time, he just showed that he's willing to be very cumbersome. Uh, so possibly he spoke uh, just now uh, recently with the after that, because, of course, all the former Soviet Republic leaders are very nervous at this time, uh, obviously, for this for this reason of an empire uh, restoration. So he spoke with um, Ali of the president of uh, Azerbaijan and assured him that he has recognized the sovereignty of all republics. Uh, former republics, ex- except for Ukraine, because Ukraine is a client state of the Western menacing powers. So he seems to have made a distinction. On the other hand, he says all sorts of things, and then they turn out not to be true. We, you and I discussed a long time ago the green man in Crimea that did not exist, and then suddenly they did. Um, so I think that he is it seems to me, I, I'm afraid to analyze anymore because I was wrong about the invasion. I was certain that he would stop with uh, Donetsk and Luhansk and the recognition of them and may not even send troops. But how wrong was I? Uh, I thought, I think that his agenda now, if you can, call, if I can call it that, is the pan-Slavic empire, pan-Slavic state. Remember when Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, in the early 90s, late 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 80s, wrote an article how we could make Russia, and he spoke about the unity of the three Slavic nations, Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia, and Solzhenitsyn was Putin's mentor, and Putin admired him tremendously because Putin likes history, he likes philosophy of this kind of very patriotic, nationalistic kind, and uh, it does seem that he, like in I don't know, in, in like putting on in 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 uh, uh, in actual terms, Marx das Kapital, the way it was done in 1917, sort of the proletarians, and uh, he seems to be doing that for Solzhenitsyn is is creating, uh, creating a pan pan Slavic state. So, why do you think you were wrong? What led you, Nina Khrushcheva, to think that Putin wouldn't invade? Because what I've studied, I mean, and you know I've studied dictators and and autocrats, um, and Putin particularly uh, wrote books about him, 
uh, and I always thought he was a very, he's a gambler, he's a player, but he's, he's a calcul- calculated gambler. And that's what he showed in 2014 when the next Crimean wanted to take all parts of Navarossia, sort of the, this idea that there was a Russian Ukrainian, but Russian state with Ukrainian borders, the, the one that now belong to Ukraine. So they want where Odessa, where Odessa is, what Mariupol is, and this Donetsk and Luhansk are. Uh, and uh, so he planned to take all of that. And then it just didn't work out because Ukrainians uh, put up a fight. And he very quickly, rather quickly withdrew and, and almost uh, made himself unavailable to um, to those um, self-proclaimed republic leaders and sort of we're not going to recognize them yet and, you know, the UN independent, we have nothing to do with that. So he's very careful not to, or was very careful not to overdo and not to overstep, not to damage his reputation of a rational, calculated, uh, calculated person. But this time he did. And uh, I was, you know, the whole night we spent on 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 TV and kind of discussing it and commenting it. And in in Russia, and essentially almost everybody said that nobody could expect that because it's it seemed very unlike Putin. It just suddenly he turned into Mao slash Stalin and became grandiose in a sense that they want to take all humanity because that's. That's the goal that they want. And that really didn't seem until yesterday to me that a possibility. I thought he was I, I, I thought he was still in the rational universe and sort of political uh, political chess game, but clearly he's not. He's in this historic universe where he needs a place in history. And even if it brings blood, like Alexander's, Alexander Macedonian, if it brings blood, but it's going to be a great empire, I'm fine with that. Well, first of all, he's rehabilitating Stalin, <laughs> closing down Memorial. And uh, I thought that the bizarre staged National Security Council meeting in the Kremlin was very, very telling in his attitude to his inner circle. There was always this assumption that the hawks like Petrushev and others were somehow whispering dark things in his ears, but he came across as even more hawkish in many ways, but also he was dressing them down like schoolboys. And that felt to me like the power of a czar. He was just in charge, and he wanted everybody to realize that. And even his closest aides were almost embarrassingly bumbling <laughs> and, and scared of him. Uh, did you get that feeling? Oh, it was an amazing scene. I mean, it was almost... I mean, it was embarrassing to show, but I'm sure they showed it to show him because exactly as we say, we think Patrushev and and others should be those hawks that push him over the edge. And uh, uh, suddenly, I mean, Patrushev was saying, well, but let's just tell the Americans first, maybe before we do that. Uh, And uh, Narishkin, who is another historian and also a hawk, he... um, he bum- was bumbling as if he was just shocked by the, even the whole the whole prospect of it. So this <laughs> goes. Says, the idea- Putin said to him, "Speak plainly." <laughs> right, exactly. So here goes the idea that uh, you know he is not in control and he doesn't know. It. I mean, he's clearly 
making those decisions. But what is remarkable is that how absolute power corrupts absolutely, because these are the people that could have, what are they afraid of? What really they are, what, what is that fear? What could he possibly do worse than he's just doing to them right now when there is no, there's, there will be no economy, no travel, no part of the world. Although, of course, Piskov, the, the spokesperson said, well, of course, the Iron Curtain is not going to fall in Russia. But really, already did. I mean, half of the sports events already canceled. Banks are canceled. I mean, it's so, so that was a remarkable moment for all of us to understand that we ended up in Stalinism without even noticing it. And of course we did notice it, but because it was not immediate and still not as oppressive as Stalinism was, we still thought that we're just kind of skating over it. And we are not, we're not skating over it at all. And again, I'm speaking with Nina Krusheva, who's a professor in the Graduate Program of International Affairs at the New School and a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. She's also an editor of and a contributor to Project Syndicate and the author of The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. And her latest book is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. And she has an article at Project Syndicate, Putin is No Nixon. So just sort of trying to predict where we're heading in the next few days because it's, I mean, in a way, Putin is lucky that Zelensky is kind of clueless. And apparently, I don't know whether he's not listening to his military people, but he he was so concerned about sowing panic amongst the people that he didn't really prepare the, particularly the big cities for resistance. So it looks like Kiev and the others will fall. And I don't know about the ones in the West, but pretty quickly, particularly in the case of the capital Kiev, there's a movement from the south and from the north, from Belarus and from Odessa, that's closing in on the city. So if then he has to do occupation, the assumption is that there'll be a lot of resistance from the public and also even guerrilla war. So this is one of two scenarios, you know, you either create such a kind of iron-fisted dictatorship and eradicate all opposition, I mean, has he thought this through, do you think? Well, that's what I've been arguing, you know, when when all these maps were showing up in Washington Post and the German publications, and you are nuts. This is, and I think Zelensky was thinking the same way. This is, this cannot happen. I mean, what is he, I think yesterday in another show, I said, well, Putin may have lost grip on reality, which he did, but he's not suicidal. Clearly he's suicidal. That's what I meant by, saying he can't go on Kiev because there would be so much resistance. There's going to be so much growth. And these are Ukrainians. I mean, they already showed in World War II what they can do uh, to fight the oppressor. So I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it doesn't seem that any realistic thought enters his mind anymore. And it doesn't seem that all these people who sheepishly nod who cannot not understand what a disaster, I mean, Russia is finished, essentially. Uh, And yet they, I mean, you know, I wish we had in Russia, I wish we had the 25th Amendment uh, to make sure these things do not happen. So I think it's, it's, it's impossible to predict because they could be a guerrilla war. They could be the Russians could stop. I mean, it's a now, I mean, as horrible as it sounds, it may be a good case scenario that Russians would attack all the military capability and quickly withdraw, which is 
very unlikely, but possibly we still don't know exactly what Putin wants uh, as as a whole as a result of this. But but altogether, I think you know, has been said by many people, even regardless of the even before the invasion, regardless of the invasion, the world as we've known it has now come to an end. I mean, this morning, Moscow time at five in the morning, the, the world has come has come to an end because economies are going to be stressed no matter how far or how not too far Putin goes in Ukraine, whether he continues, as Joe Biden says, into this kind of march, imperial march, whether he um, waits and sees how it goes and so on and so forth. But we are really in an entirely different universe. And I wouldn't even call it the Cold War because in the Cold War, there was there were conversations between the opposing camps, but it doesn't seem to be even what are they going to converse about? Well, Biden made that clear in the press conference today when he was asked about it. Is he going to be talking with Putin? He said absolutely no. Not so, right. But my sense is that Putin will succeed militarily probably pretty quickly. I mean, it, I don't know whether you could make the comparison with the Iraq war where it was a quick victory followed by a slow defeat. We just simply don't know. But it seems like, in many ways, the idea of house-to-house fighting and holding the cities, and I don't see that happening now because, as I say, I, I think Zelensky is obviously not a military guy. He's a, he's a former television actor, you know. And I believe they're going to be heading off to Poland pretty soon, the government of Zelensky and his cabinet. But, again, it's the day after or the weeks after that really count here. And what's happening, though, do you think, in Russia itself? How's he going to sell this? I mean, first of all, they've cracked down on demonstrations. They've arrested people that were brave enough to demonstrate because they told them in advance, we'll arrest you and it'll ruin your careers if you get arrested. So they did everything to prevent any kind of demonstrations, and they were pretty ruthless about it. But is there a slow burn here, both in terms of the possibility of a kind of guerrilla war in Ukraine itself and a slow burn in terms of the Russian people eventually figuring out that they were sold a pack of lies. Well, but Russian people already know they were sold a pack of lies. Nobody cared about Donetsk and Luhansk at all. Nobody wanted the war. Nobody believed. I mean, as I say, no, nobody really believed that it would happen. So there was very Putin-esque posturing. You know, he's showing what he can do and and basically going to make his will by force of showing force, something like that. But they were, uh, I mean, 500 people were arrested today, but there were still giant demonstrations in the center of Moscow. The people were walking with with candles, with phones lit. Uh, so it is going on. And so it's not, I mean, I don't know how he's going to to sell it. In fact, they did a poll, I think, yesterday, the day before yesterday, uh, in which 73, 73% of Russians agreed that it's a good idea to recognize the those self-proclaimed republics. I, I can, I'm sure it's a lie, because no, there's no such thing as 73% even care about those republics. Certainly not about a war with Ukraine. And therefore, it would be very difficult to sell. It's, um, you know, people are starting, even actors who 
who Putin loves and and cherishes and invites over, they've been speaking out. I mean, I don't know how long it will last. People will get threatened. People will get people will get upset. We saw it with the Putin cabinet. I mean, if they are afraid, what what to say about the rest of the country? But that goes to the point that we are not going to live in the world that we lived yesterday because Russia is not going to be the same. It's going to become either an incredibly, infinitely more oppressive than it already is. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, Biden and Putin, or United States and Russia now are not just adversaries, they are enemies, even if they are not fighting technically yet, but they're enemies and they're, it, it's going to, uh, it's going to escalate this animosity. They are, they are going to fight with each other in terms of, you know, cyber, in terms of space programs, because Russia now I'm going to, I'm sure going to unite with China. And so, so we're back to that horrible reality of the Cold War, although of course today it's not going to be called that way. Well, that's probably though, in a way, the only way that he's going to hold on to power indefinitely is to recreate a kind of security military industrial state that the Soviet Union was. Yeah, and with China's and with China's help, exactly, because now he's also sort of emboldened because he has Xi Jinping to to back him up. So to sort of they create this China Russia empire, which of course is another milk miscalculation on his part because he thinks he's a bigger dog in this relationship and Xi Jinping is laughing at it. Right. Well, you point out in your article at Project Syndicate, Putin is no Nixon. And it's also in your book, In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones, that when you you went from the Russia east across the Amur River to China and to a market where Russians were buying sort of cheap Chinese stuff and the Chinese attitudes with the Russians were patronizing at the very least, right? Absolutely. It was disdain and, and mockery is that, look, you idiots, we can sell you all this crap. You know, the, the Chinese, the the phone covers with fake diamonds and fake furs. And it, it was, I've never been so looked down upon by any nation um, than I was when, when I was there. And not only with disdain, but also kind of superiority and and uh, potential to to frighten you because they also threaten you on the border and and and, and all this so I, I mean it just he the only way I can explain that behavior is he's really thinking in that um, godly universe of Mao and Stalin of great powers that their role is in history so whatever this little, little ants of people, the human people that are uh, under their control, this is irrelevant because their role is in uh, historical terms, not in contemporary terms, which is nuts, which is nuts in modernity. Well, um, it's a sad day, and I'm glad that we had this conversation, even though uh, I'm sure you're feeling even more depressed than I am. Well, we are depressed. We spend the whole night trying to explain it. And in fact, there was a good article in the New York Times I normally would not recommend just because everybody knows it anyway. But there was a good article by Moscow Bureau Chief Anton Trainovsky with that very title is that I didn't expect it. How could it happen? 
why did it happen? It was completely, completely not anything that uh, in, in analysis one could predict. I mean, you could assume that Putin would act this way, but if you analyze Putin with the 20 years of experience, very few could really rationally predict this kind of absolutely rational behavior. Well, Nina Kosheva, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Nina Khrushcheva, who's a professor in the Graduate Program of International Affairs at the New School and a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. She's also an editor of and a contributor to Project Syndicate and the author of The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. And her latest book is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. And she has an article at Project Syndicate, Putin is No Nixon. Can take a brief station break. We're back looking into the sanctions announced today by President Biden. Stuck around St. Petersburg when I saw it was a time for a change. Killed the Tsar and its ministers. Anastasia screamed in vain. I rode a tank, held a generous rank when the blitzkrieg raged and the body. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anders Aslan, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. A member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, he worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anders Asland. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, th- I want to talk to you about Ukraine, since you're very familiar with the country, and that the country is now under attack from Russia and from three sides, and Russian forces have come down from Belarus into the outskirts of Kiev, and they've also come up from Odessa, from the Black Sea, to the outskirts of Kiev. So it's an extraordinary day, heartbreaking for many. I spoke earlier in the program with Nina Khrushcheva, Khrushchev's granddaughter, who was really quite heartbroken and couldn't believe it was happening. Were you caught by surprise? No. I thought this was uh, coming. I thought that the U.S. government had clarified this very well. And I must uh, give credit to uh, President Biden and Secretary of uh, State uh, uh, Antony Blinken. I still believe in uh, government um, authority, and they told me everything that I needed to know, and it turned out to be correct. I'm quite surprised. So in terms of the sanctions that Biden announced today, they seem to be fairly severe, except some of the questions from the press uh, about SWIFT and why he didn't uh, include SWIFT seem to suggest that they weren't as strong as he could have employed. My understanding is that Biden wasn't able to get a unanimous agreement on cutting Russia off from SWIFT because of Germany, Cyprus, and Italy. So what's your understanding there? I have a much more positive understanding of it. Uh, It's more important when the U.S. declares that uh, an entity cannot deal in dollars than that they are cut off from SWIFT. 
because Swift is really a messaging system. So if you're off Swift, it means that your payments are delayed as they were in the old days when um, uh, you, you had to, to send a telefax or something like that and uh, could not operate uh, through the internet. It's much more serious if uh, you have uh, SDN nomination, special designation, meaning that you you are not allowed to deal with these entities. And it's effectively, this was done now with five important big financial institutions, four of them state-owned, and then 13 state institutions, or specifically 11 state institutions, were not allowed to take uh, any loans abroad any longer. So I thought that this is uh, exactly how I count. How much money do you lose? And I would say 200 to 300 billion dollars uh, and uh, Russian foreign debt today is uh, 480 billion dollars. This was big. It was big than SWIFT. Uh, so I think that uh, President Biden was uh, uh, factually accurate when he said that this is more important uh, than SWIFT. SWIFT is sort of a slogan you threw around. Right. Well, is is what about the at least one trillion in dark money of, from uh, Russian capital flight? Maybe as high as two trillion abroad. Um, is there any way to go after that? Of course there is. And this is the problem. Uh, what the US and the UK have been very soft on is going the oligarchs. Uh, you know, and I, I have been arguing for three big oligarchs who should be sanctioned because they are close to the Kremlin and they are deeply co uh, corrupt and criminal. And that is Roman Abramovich, known to be the cashier of uh, Putin for his uh, first term at least, probably more. Alisher Usmanov who has fronted for Putin uh, uh, repeatedly, and Leonid Mikkelsen, who has uh, been working together with uh, Gennady Timchenko, long sanction, uh, close uh, crony, and uh, Mikkelsen and Alisher Usmanov uh, provided big bribes, according to the Navalny film about Medvedev, about there is a really new credible uh, objection. So the US, and the UK are afraid of going after the big oligarchs, uh, while they are quite decent in go, uh, or the US is quite decent in going after the big state banks. So uh, Abramov, because he owns the Chelsea Football Club, and they often refer to London as Moscow on the Thames, he just left the south of France in his private jet for Moscow. So. The, some of the sanctions, though, that Biden has announced against Russian elites and their families, I noticed that Sergei Ivanov and his son Sergei among them, along with uh, Petrushev and uh, Session and others, you know Ivanov, right? He used to be the uh, Putin's chief of staff, a former KGB general. I think he got fired because he kept reminding Putin that he was a general and Putin was a colonel. What do you make of those sanctions? Why are they going after them? And I thought that Ivanov was, wasn't a hardliner like Petrushev is. 
Well, I think that we are basically in the same group. Uh, I do know Sergei Ivanov, and I quite like him as a person. Uh, but that is because he speaks like excellent uh, Swedish, who t- tends to come up to talk to me in, uh, at, uh, at receptions. You know, you always appreciate that when uh, t- top people pay attention to you uh, and you do not necessarily look up on their morals in most uh, instances. And he's a fun guy. He's a really fun guy, but uh, I thought this was right uh, because uh, these uh, three young gentlemen have got their jobs uh, because of they are sons of their fathers. So uh, Sergei Ivanov, the younger, he is um, CEO of Russia's big uh, state-owned diamond company. And you ask why? because he is his father's son. And it's the same with uh, the two others who were sanctioned now. And I thought it was also very appropriate uh, with the three others who were sanctioned, was it the day before yesterday, by the US government. I think uh, the the US should go after this. Uh, And these people, uh, it's simply a sign of, uh, it's uh, straightforward because they are sons. So let's turn then, Anders, since you're in constant touch with Ukraine and know a lot of people there, particularly in the government, what is actually the situation? I'd heard earlier that the Spetsnaz, the Special Forces, the Airborne Forces, had taken one of the airports on the outskirts of Kiev, where the Antonov aircraft factory is. Now, one of the people that I talked to earlier, a few weeks ago, military analyst in Moscow, uh, Pavel Falgenhauer, he said that part of the plans were that they didn't. They wanted to take these factories intact because the, Russia needs the Antonov factory and other uh, shipbuilding factories on the Black Sea as well. So what is going on there? Because I understand that the Ukrainians launched a counterattack. What's the latest on that? I, I think that this is an important uh, point. Uh, we've discussed it before. So there are five big points of the military industrial uh, factories in Ukraine, and they are not independent, but they have worked for the military industrial complex of the Soviet Union. I say the Soviet Union intentionally, because that's how it works. So until 2014, uh, about 25% of Ukraine's uh, exports uh, to Russia was uh, uh, engineering products to the military industrial complex. And we can divide it into five pieces. One is uh, Yushmash in Dnipropetrovsk that uh, produced the big uh, interballistic missiles, the biggest rockets in the world. These are the rockets that took US and Russian uh, cosmonauts uh, to the International Space Station. Uh, the most important part was probably Motorzic, uh, uh, headquartered in Saporizhia. Uh, the Russian troops are now 60 kilometers south of it. And uh, uh, they produced all uh, helicopter engines for, the, for Russia and a lot of uh, the <clears throat> the engines uh, for uh, airplanes. In Kharkiv, a large number of uh, parts for the air defense system, S-300 and S-400, uh, the, proud, uh, the pride of uh, uh, 
the Soviet army uh, were uh, were produced. What you t- talked about is um, the hulks of uh, the big naval ships. They were pro- uh, produced in Nikolaev, uh, and that uh, shipyard is essentially standing uh, empty. There are two uh, shipyards there that are not really producing anything uh, because there's no demand for the services. And uh, then the Antonov airplane, uh, the, uh, the big military transport airplanes, actually the biggest uh, military transport airplanes that were produced in Kiev. And here, uh, Ukraine actually produced all of the parts. Uh, so these are the biggest uh, transport uh, airplane in the, uh, the world. And this was uh, the airport around which there was a battle uh, today. But what happened was that the Spetsnaz, which are some of the Russia's best troops, arrived by helicopter. But I understand that the Ukrainians counterattacked, and they weren't even uh, the top-notch uh, Ukrainian soldiers. They were the territorial guards. I don't know who took it on. It was in in Sumim that it was the territorial guards. Oh, I see. Took it on. I'm not quite sure which troops were, but they were quite cruel. They they shot all the Russians. Uh-huh. So they retook the airport then, the Ukrainians. Yeah. So, the latest information I have from a good uh, uh, Ukrainian sources. Of course, uh, I'm not there myself. <laughs> so just in closing then, what's your sense, uh, Anders, of whether they can hold out for a little longer? Because as far as I know, Zelensky was so afraid of creating panic that he never prepared the cities with the barricade necessary to keep the Russians out and to force them into you know, house-to-house fighting. What's your reading on how long they're going to hold out? Yeah, let, let me give you a, a little broader, a bit of a broader picture of uh, the situation. The Ukrainian soldiers have been in the wrong places. They have been heavily concentrated to Donbass. That's what the Ukrainians were really prepared for, and they were fighting very well. Uh, but uh, Putin surprised them by coming from the south, from Crimea, and from uh, from the north, and therefore they were not uh, in good places and also attacking uh, Kiev. So uh, the Ukrainians lost, you can say, the first round, but uh, uh, the longer the time uh, passes, the better they will do. It does seem as if uh, Ukrainian forces, not least the second uh, uh, rank forces, uh, the territorial uh, guards, that they are doing much better than uh, could have been expected. While for the Russians, their um, airborne troops are outstanding. But after that, it's not good. It was reported by Radio Free Europe uh, in uh, Belarus that uh, the Russian uh, troops drink too much and they sell too much of uh, their diesel to be good soldiers. And I think that this is a general impression. The Ukrainian soldiers today are very uh, patriotic, and this is true also the second and the third uh, range, the, uh, the territorial and the civil, uh, civilian troops. Well, Anders Aslan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure as always, Ian. 
And again, I've been speaking with Anders Aslan, who's a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a member of the Russian Academy of National Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. We're going to take a brief station break back discussing how a dictator and kleptocrat is threatening the world peace in a war of his choosing because he has the power to do so, having extinguished democracy and the rule of law in Russia. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Moises Nam, who's a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an internationally syndicated columnist. He previously served as editor-in-chief of foreign policy, as Venezuela's trade minister, and as executive director of the World Bank. He's the author of the new book, Just Out, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics in the 21st Century. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, The Dictator's New Playbook, Why Democracy is Losing the Fight. Welcome to Background Briefing, Moises Nam. Thank you. Thanks uh, for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us. And earlier on the program, we were speaking with Nina Khrushcheva, that granddaughter of the Soviet leader Khrushchev. And we're talking about the extraordinary display of power of the new Tsar, Vladimir Putin, in the Kremlin on Monday sitting on the throne, dressing down in this huge hall, his uh, lieutenants and ministers with absolute power. And, of course, they were quaking, even though many of them are the heads of the security services. So that was a, quite a sight to be seen. But your new book, The Revenge of Power, points out that power has not changed, but the way people go about gaining it and using it has been transformed and the modern tools are populism, polarization, and post-truths, all of which uh, Putin has perfected, right? Exactly. The revenge of power, as you said, is the title of the book, and we're seeing the revenge of Putin. Um, this is after years in which uh, being, you know, he was, uh, of course, in charge of Russia, but he was seeding because he wanted uh, more. He believed that Ukraine uh, ought to belong to uh, to Russia, and and uh, there is a, a way of looking at this, or taking a, a longer view and uh, asking oneself uh, uh, if this is sustainable, if uh, this absolute concentration of power uh, in Russia that uh, Putin is now displaying is sustainable. Perhaps not. Well, you point out that it's a common mistake to treat populism as an ideology. It's better understood as a technique for seeking power. So, again, Putin has reached the pinnacle. And I wonder whether, obviously, there's, you could make the analogies with the U.S. invasion of Iraq. It was a quick victory followed by a slow defeat. Whether there'll be a slow defeat with guerrilla warfare in Ukraine, we don't know. 
But the other possibility would be uh, just a brutal dictatorship, a Stalinist dictatorship, because in many ways what Putin is doing now is he's recreating not the Soviet Union so much as the, the structure of power of the people in the Kremlin, where you have a military-industrial complex and, and the security services basically running the place. So it's going to get more and more dark in Russia, and that's how Putin's going to hold on to power, and it's going to get more and more dark in Ukraine. But you have examples around the world. The country from which you come, Venezuela, is run by an incredibly incompetent dictatorship that have devastated the economy, devastated the people, devastated the health services, but somehow they hang on. And another example would be Zimbabwe, which has absolutely been devastated by the most horrible dictators. He's died, Mugabe, but his successor, the crocodile, is even worse. And yet decades go by and nothing's happened. So what is the staying power of today's autocrats? Guys with guns. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, the two examples you, you presented absolutely accurately. Uh, but the, in, in both cases, what you have is uh, the armed forces that are, you know, like a Praetorian guard of the, of the, of the leader, of the ruler, Nicolás Maduro in Venezuela and uh, the Mugabe successor in Uganda. Uh, we, we don't know uh, how strong are these military shields that uh, protect and protect these leaders, uh, these rulers, and allow them to, to, to go about destroying a country, destroying a society, as you described it. But in the book, I, I speak about the other two ingredients of uh, all this that's happening. The three Ps are populism, polarization, and post-truth. And again, um, Putin was a, a, an adroit user uh, of all these three uh, strategies. Uh, he's surely a populist, uh, a nationalist. Uh, he also is very good at polarizing, at denying um, those that do not think like him even the right to, to, build, to, to participate in elections, as we have seen by the way he has treated uh, Navalny. He's um, one of the top league contenders and the challengers to his power in Russia. And then there's a post-truth, populist. Populism, polarization, and post-truth, which is no longer what we used to see, which is propaganda, right? You know, that, that has always existed. But this is different. This is uh, um, post-truth uh, uh, amplified, magnified, and leveraged uh, by technology and by uh, a bunch of other things that are dividing um, uh, people and creating conditions in which uh, uh, um, no truth is completely credible unless it's aligned to one's identity and uh, political uh, sympathies. And again, I'm speaking with Moises Nam, who's a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an internationally syndicated columnist. He previously served as editor-in-chief of foreign policy, as Venezuela's trade minister, and as executive director of the World Bank. And he is the author of the new book, Just Out, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, The Dictator's New Playbook, Why Democracy is Losing the Fight. Well, as you point out, though, Post-truth today is not in any way subscribed by or prescribed by 
ideology. You make the example, in Bolivia, President Evo Morales got millions of his followers to accept as an article of faith that presidential term limits amounted to a fundamental human rights violation. In the Philippines, Duterte got built support for extrajudicial killings by relentlessly portraying concern for human rights as an affection of a corrupt elite. And Trump, of course, persuaded countless supporters that assaulting the U.S. Capitol to derail the certification of election results constituted a brave stand in favor of election integrity. So those are perfect examples of how this is all devoid of ideology, right? Absolutely. And we can see, you know, now uh, there is this new category, you know, the big lie. The big lie is being used, uh, you know, we all know that leaders and politicians uh, lie, some embellish, exaggerate, distort uh, the truth to put them at the service of their interests. But now that people talk about the big lie, and we have had examples of big lies and how they ended, um, you know, Boris Johnson's uh, big lie was Brexit. And, you know, he, he, he was part of that movement that essentially promised that, uh, a wonderful outcome if Brexit was voted in, and it was, and it has been cat- short of catastrophic. Um, we have seen um, Donald Trump, uh, the big lie there in that case was denying that, uh, not accepting the, the fact that he lost the election. And now we have another big lie, which is uh, Vladimir Putin giving a history of uh, Ukraine that is completely distorted. Uh, and it's a big lie. So big lies are now being uh, commonly used to completely distort, to completely uh, challenge uh, uh, reality and just present a story that is convenient for the rulers. Well, in terms of Trump, and of course Trump is siding with Putin, which is just extraordinary, but you grew up in Venezuela and you watched Chavez, of course, as you point out, transform his fame into power and, and his power into celebrity. And he had this what daily television show where you talk to average people and he showed real empathy. I mean, he actually, I think, did have real empathy. Trump, of course, has no real empathy, but he did use the same kind of circus, right, in 2016 where he connected with his people. And, of course, Hillary Clinton did the opposite. So how much is is it about the new tools like television, not that that's a new tool, but television. I mean, Hitler came to power through Goebbels' use of radio, but television and, of course, social media is a huge tool today. Do you have to be telegenic, a performer, to be a dictator today? No, and I think uh, Putin is a good example of that. Uh, of that, you know, he surely has a different kind of uh, link with his followers. Uh, there are followers of leaders that develop a very close uh, emotional bond with the leader. Um, here, with Putin, is different. There is uh, surely he has some support, but that support is based on the fact that he controls, has absolutely tight control of all the media. Uh, that he also interferes and uh, even social media and the internet are are controlled and uh, supervised in in complex ways. And uh, in the case of uh, um, these dictators, these rulers, you know, you mentioned Hugo Chavez and 
Donald Trump, they could not be more different. They almost come from different planets in terms of, you know, their countries, their, their, their perspectives, their, their, their situation in life, what their, their backgrounds and so on. But these very two very different individuals ended up using exactly the same toolkits. Uh, they're, they're very similar. That um, essentially one one important part is denying uh, those who don't think like them or that do not support them their legitimacy to participate in, in politics uh, or allowing them space to be part of uh, the political process. Um, the demonization of the media, the um, nationalism, paranoia, you know, walk the, the dog kind of uh, strategy in terms of creating wars that are very convenient and distractions. And, uh, and unite the country. Wars typically unites a society. So all of those things, there's a long list in the book, in the Revenge of Power, I include the menu and the, and the toolkit that are, is common now among the 21st century uh, strongmen and rulers. But you also talk about status dissonance, as you describe it, and that's the bitterness and grudges that people have against this mythical elite that Donald Trump keeps talking about when, of course, he never took care of his own people. It was Amer He said it was America first, but it was always Trump first, and he took care of the billionaires, not the people that showed up at the MAGA rallies. But you have to admit that it's kind of a, a clever ruse on the part of Trump and other of these populist leaders that they somehow can tap in to that well of social bitterness and of course their ultimate goal as you point out is to turn the state into a profit center for their criminalized coterie so god help us if trump comes back right yeah I, i'm very worried about this possibility because i don't think uh, the next uh, presidential election if he runs is not going to be you know two candidates each one which is uh, plus and minuses and then one picks uh, one uh, of the two candidates I think in the next election, if if, if Trump runs and has a chance of winning, we're talking about the survival of uh, democracy uh, in the United States. And, and that has huge global consequences, has economic consequences, of course. Uh, and I'm very worried, uh, you know, I, I watch how they are taking control of state houses and all the infrastructure of voting, uh, the logistics of democracy. They understood uh, clearly that they can stealthily take, take control of the ways in which uh, elections uh, are processed. And uh, so they, they are altering the composition and the job description of those that ha are in charge of counting and, and, and making sure that elections are free and fair. So that's only one aspect. And, uh, and then there is the, the populism that you, that you also mentioned, how they were using it in the same way. And, you know, let's remember that populism is as old as politics, is divide and conquer. And this is the division, you know, these are leaders that bring um, to the fore uh, divisions between the noble people that have been exploited, abused, uh, and uh, mistreated by a rapacious elite. And this is uh, the, and here comes uh, the messianic populist leader that will protect uh, the people from that elite. And that you can see that in Hugo Chavez, you can see it in Duterte in the Philippines, um, and of course, Donald Trump in the United States. So it's the combination of all these things and how democracy is being undermined uh, in very 
uh, opaque ways, in very stealthy ways. There is, um, there's none. It used to be that democracies died when there was a coup and a military junta took power. Now uh, it's not an event; it's a process of uh, uh, democratic decay, done very stealthily, in, in very difficult to capture kind of moves because are deeply in, inside the bureaucracies, but end up uh, concentrating power and weakening the checks and balances that define a democracy. So it's pretty clear that now we, of course, are in a new world, as President Biden said today and others have said, a new Cold War. But for some time, the real struggle in this world is between frail democracies and the rule of law and the encroachment of kleptocracies and autocracies. And your article at Foreign Affairs, The Dictator's New Playbook, Moises Nam, subtitle which is Why democracy is losing the fight. Um, it does feel like we're losing the fight, and I'm not sure how you fight back against this encroaching criminality. There are certain tools. I mean, one of them, of course, is what Biden's doing today is trying to go up to the money of the elites. But if you really went after offshore money, there's a lot of people, you know, hiding the money abroad so they don't have to pay taxes, and that includes big corporations. So what are the mechanisms to fight back against this tide of autocracy and kleptocracy? Well, no fight has ever been won without having first being recognized and identified as a significant threat. And I think we have been led by us, I mean, uh, liberals, people that believe in democracy, uh, that prefer democracy to, with all its defects uh, to other systems. So we have been late in reacting uh, to this, uh, the, to the revenge of power to the kinds of things that uh, um, autocrats, 21st century autocrats, are undermining democracy from within and in a stealthy way. So the first thing, the first important thing is to understand that this is happening and that this is a fight for democracy, not just for one candidate or the other. The second is urgent that societies uh, in, in, in put a price and a cost to lie, to the big lie. It has become too easy to just uh, spew lies that are absolutely false and, and make them part of the, the, the national conversation as, as if they were through without consequences. I think it's very important to raise the costs and the bad consequences for those that uh, lie. Um, in, in, in public life and that, uh, and that treat every every situation as, a, as one in which the reality can be manipulated, distorted uh, and changed uh, and, and make it uh, part of the story when in fact is a lie. So the first and a very important thing is, is that is uh, in, increase the costs of lying and the risks of lying in political life. Another one is that Dictators, these wannabe, uh, you know, autocrats, are, um, are highly crime, running highly criminalized enterprises. You see, in the past, we refused to refer to corruption, which is when uh, somebody outside the government bribed or colluded with somebody inside the government to uh, either increase the price uh, of a public uh, service and, and, and pocket the the, the money there, or changing uh, rules uh, of co construction standards. That, that's the corruption in which essentially the protagonists are some business people, quote unquote, outside the government with a government official. 
Then we had kleptocracy, which is the massive accumulation of uh, stolen goods, essentially governments and rulers uh, that uh, you know enrich themselves. Uh, and the main the main objective was to just become very wealthy, them, their families, their cronies, and the military. But what we're seeing now is different. It's not just mere corruption. There is a lot of that. And there is not just kleptocracy. There's also a lot of that. We are now watching how the highly criminalized uh, states are taking over that and are using the money that they're stealing and their uh, financial wealth and, and, and their wealth in general at the service uh, of their public policy goals uh, and political goals, both inside and outside the country. And so we can see how the rules and approaches and style and tools that are used by organized crime now are used by those at the center of power in a lot of countries. Well, we've run out of time, but back to Putin. You point out that in Russia, Putin has managed to turn the old Soviet system into a mafia state. Uh, I think you can take that even further, and it's alarming given that this nuclear power has gone to war against its neighbor and is threatening NATO, which is also uh, has nuclear weapons. What's happening, what's been going on with Putin is this deadly combination of national security and organized crime, which we've never had in geopolitics before. We've never had the combination of the mafia and nuclear weapons. That's exactly right. And that is one of the very threatening uh, conditions in which we find ourselves uh, in this 21st century. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Moises Nam. Thank you very much, Ian. It was a pleasure. Likewise, and again, I've been speaking with Moises Nam, who's a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an internationally syndicated columnist. He previously served as the editor-in-chief of foreign policy, as Venezuela's trade minister, and as executive director of the World Bank. And he's the author of the new book, Just Out, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, The Dictator's New Playbook, Why Democracy is Losing the Fight. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.